Hello and welcome to Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. In this episode, Professor John Colkin from Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College of Information Systems and Public Policy in Pittsburgh talks about his article, Heroin Use Cannot Be Measured Adequately with a General Population Survey. John discusses some of the ways to measure rare and stigmatised behaviour such as heroin use. He also talks about some of the common errors in general population surveys and some of the ways to produce more accurate estimates of drug use. This interview is recorded online on the 3rd of March 2021. We hope you enjoy. So your paper that was recently uh, published in Addiction uh, talked about how um, some of the difficulties with measuring heroin use from general population surveys. Um, can you say just a little bit about the overall findings of your your paper around the inaccuracies in, in I think, particularly US methods of, of estimating heroin use? Sure. The general population survey is off by a factor of 10. What the survey says for the number of high-frequency users is wrong, and the best way to fix it is add one zero at the end of it. It's off and off in a big way. And one reason we focused on the United States is the United States General Population Survey is really excellent. 70,000 people asked per year. It's very well done, very well managed. We intentionally picked it because we're trying to make an a fortiori argument. If even that really big survey messed up, general population surveys in general are going to fail. We also intentionally focused on high-frequency heroin use because that's a pretty simple thing to ask about. How many times did you use in the last week? How many times did you use in the last month? Concepts that are at least as important, like dependence, that's a harder thing to get at in a survey. So we stacked the deck in favor of the general population survey doing well, and it still didn't. So, uh, and you go through this in the article. Um, can you just outline some, some of the reasons why it's out by so much? Yeah, sure. So people focus on things like, oh, the sampling frame might not be broad enough. We're missing people. And that's true. We miss people who are homeless and not in shelters. But frankly, the the surveys, as I said, it's really well run. They've knocked themselves out to go expand the sampling frame. They do cover homeless who are in shelters. That's not the big problem. One big problem is a lot of these folks aren't home. If you're leading a chaotic life of heavy drug use, you're not always there and answer the door. But even if you are, the person knocks and says, hi, I'm for the government. Please tell me about your heavy drug use, for which, by the way, you can go to prison. It's a shocker that not everybody answers that question honestly. So that's why we phrase the key conclusion as um, GPS cannot be trusted to accurately estimate the prevalence or frequency of rare and stigmatized behavior. GPS can do a million things. We're not against GPS. They're remarkably successful at tracking cannabis markets. Not so much for heavy heroin use. And, and is that because there, there are, say, fewer uh, legal implications for cannabis use than for heroin use? Oh, I'm sure that's part of it. There's also just general stigma. And then there's just also how rare it is. Uh, we offer some stats about how, even if you aggregate over years and years of this big survey, the number of respondents who report high-frequency heroin use is down to, to pretty small numbers. And you get these weird blips, like in 2006, it looked like Uh, Older folks were suddenly having a massive heroin epidemic. But when you unpack it, a lot of that was driven by just two people. The the survey happened to get two elderly Hispanic gentlemen who said that they used heroin a lot. 
those two people, because they get such a high sampling rate, contributed to a 70,000 person apparent increase in, in heroin use amongst older folks. It's very hard to estimate low frequency behavior when you go out to the general population. It's way easier to find information about high frequency use if you focus on populations that use a lot, say arrestees. In reference to that 2006 spike, is there, you know, I think this is, it's one of those issues that's academically interesting about, um, about sampling and about how you measure something that is essentially hidden, which is kind of central to a lot of, uh, of, of addiction research. But it, is there a kind of serious policy implication here where in that example, say in 2006, you could have policy responses to a spike in heroin use, which is which is based on a statistical anomaly rather than an actual spike in heroin use. Uh, that's a real fear. And we include these recommendations about how you should and should not use GPS. And, and one of them is if you're interested in trends in uh, rare and stigmatized behavior, you ought to smooth. Don't, don't get too hung up on this year compared to last year. You want a smoother average. And this is not a, a, an alien concept. The U.S. Household Survey already effectively smoothed across adjacent years when estimating prevalence at the state level because it recognizes that the state samples are too small. There's, these are actually pretty basic ideas. In some respects, the mystery is why do these household survey-based estimates get so much currency? And I think the answer is at least twofold. One is there just aren't other alternatives and people are desperate for a number, so they reach for anyone that they can get. And then they come with this patina of scientific rigor. This is a random sample, random sample. That's good. It must be good, right? And they come with these confidence intervals that create the illusion of capturing the uncertainty accurately. Like, like there's one confidence interval, ah, I've, I've forgotten the exact numbers, but it's like, Point estimate was about 170,000 or 180,000. And they say, but it's not exactly that. Here's the confidence interval. And it runs from like, I don't know, 140 to 230 or something like that. But we think the real number is closer to 2 million. It, the sampling variability based confidence interval is only picking up one kind of error. And when you report that interval, you create the illusion that it captures all of the uncertainty and all of the error, but it's just the sampling error. So um, I think you mentioned this in the paper. So one of the ways of addressing this kind of accumulation of error in one way of measuring something is to triangulate using other methods. And I think some of the other methods that you refer to were um, you referred to Adam and to uh, capture recapture methods. Sure. So there's, there's sort of two ideas, maybe one is this notion of triangulation. Instead of putting all your eggs in any one data collection instrument, you get uh, multiple looks at the hidden phenomenon from multiple angles. That's a really good idea. And you can compare this to say how military intelligence tries to understand the hidden population of how many tanks does the other side have. You know, they, don't, they don't do a random household survey and ask how many tanks do you own. You piece together pieces of information using human judgment. You don't view it as a statistical counting exercise. You view it as an intelligence exercise where you use human judgment to synthesize all the little hints and pieces. So, so triangulation is a good thing. And a lot of European countries do that well. Um, frankly, there are places in the United States where we do this well. It's just the, in some respects, the strength of our household survey has lulled people into thinking we don't need to do that. But there's also a pretty specific idea, which is if you can find some anchor for a few locations, 
then the triangulation has some real meat to chew on. And there are different ways of getting the anchor. The estimate that my co-authors and I were involved in the United States anchored on this atom. So atom is an Oresti-based sample, and it includes urinalysis. So you're not relying on people's self-report. You actually have a biological sample to indicate whether or not opioids are in the person. Now, that's only available for, dependent on the year, 10 to 30 or so cities. But if you can find a bunch of indicators that are available for all cities, like treatment admissions, and you can calibrate that indicator with a gold standard in a handful of cities, in this case from biological samples of arrestees who are actually uh, have higher rates used, that works. But there are a lot of other gold standards you could use. These days, there's a lot of excitement about wastewater monitoring as the potential gold standard. The historical one was a capture-recapture. So Martin Bouchard did a fantastic study, or led a fantastic study out in Vancouver, where they had super information about opioid use in one particular area of Vancouver, used that as the anchor to extrapolate to the rest of Greater Vancouver and to British Columbia, but, but the heart of it was capture-recapture. So that anchor it, it could be a rusty urine monitoring, it could be wastewater, it could be capture recapture, but then you build out from that with indicators that are available for most of the jurisdictions you care about. So, so what would your um, advice be? If, you have, um, if you're a researcher and you're, you're looking for a denominator, a reliable denominator of how many heroin users there are in the US, and that this is somehow important, I mean, it's a very baseline figure. Oh, I, I, think, I think it is important, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what's your advice to, to a researcher who is looking for that figure to give them give their research an anchor in the, the relevance and, um, and the national implications? I, I mean, the bad news is at this point, I think the best, best numbers we have are, are a few years old now. They go back to like 2016. So I think the advice is really to the government. And it is to say, you ought, as a, a, on a regular basis, do one of these triangulation market estimation exercises to provide people with a, a better sense of scale. And scale is terrifically important. I mean, for instance, one of the things that's been a big deal in the United States is prescription opioid use leading to dependence and escalation to use of illegal opioids. And there are various estimates of what proportion of people who use prescription opioids on a frequent basis end up escalating. But if the way you get that risk is you start with your count of the number of illegal opioid users that's off by a factor of 10, then you miss by a factor of 10 how risky those prescription opioids are. So these things really, really matter. And I think it's incumbent on the government to invest in providing a data infrastructure. This is not at some level path-breaking science. This is data infrastructure, and it's the responsibility of the government, in our view, to provide that data infrastructure. It's, is there a kind of p politically built-in disincentive to do this? I mean, do you, are you asking for someone in, in, in a government to be the people who admit that heroin use is 10 times bigger than we already thought it was? Um, is there a kind of I wouldn't say uh, reluctance, but isn't there a built-in disincentive politically for someone to address this? Well, let me first of all say I don't think it is a Republican-Democrat partisan political issue, which is delightful. It may be the only thing, it, 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 the only thing of importance which is not a partisan divide issue. I mean, it is a little bit awkward, but we're actually pretty good at estimating 
things that are awkward if we need to. In fact, there's a whole culture out there of these cost of illness studies that are all about trying to estimate the scale of, of a problem. I think in this case, it's probably more of a small p politics issues. There are details about the uh, bureaucratic structures of who's responsible for what and the culture of those um, institutions that may be getting in the way. Um, but it is basically just asking government to be doing a good government kind of uh, thing. Like I said, the, the language of this is infrastructure. And we do invest in infrastructure. The household survey itself is a substantially expensive investment in infrastructure. It just isn't infrastructure for answering these questions about high-frequency use of rare and stigmatized behaviors. In, if you look back historically, when the HIV-AIDS became a national problem, we respond to that by investing a lot in creating new, expensive, important data collection efforts to understand that problem. It is a little odd that in response to the opioid overdose crisis, we have not um, launched comparably large efforts in new primary data collection. We've just said, we've got this thing already out there. Let's pretend it answers the question. And I guess this would also include things like cocaine use or um, methamphetamine use. I guess there must be similar issues with those. Absolutely. And yeah, we uh, argue that very explicitly. We, we picked heroin because it's sort of unusually important historically. Well, and, and in the present too. But it, the same principles would apply for other rare and stigmatized um, uh, use of other rare drugs that are heavily stigmatized. So um, if people are interested in, in this area of research, in, in improving those estimates and understanding how those estimates can be, uh, can be made, triangulated and, um, and improved upon, um, where should they look? Where's, where's the best place for them to find information about this area of research? Hmm. Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, there was a, a tradition that was pretty strong from the beginning of drug research in know, 1970 or so when things really got going through the early 90s uh, to do these approaches. And for whatever reason, it petered out. It kind of got displaced by the, the large surveys. So there is a historical tradition in the field. I think there are many other fields that grapple with difficult to estimate numbers. Homelessness would be would be one example. Uh, people often refer to, and this is this is worth it, is uh, fishing. When you're trying to manage fisheries, you want to know how many people, how many fish people are allowed to catch, and that depends how many fish are in the ocean, and they're hard to count too. So there are a bunch of fields that grapple with this problem of, of hidden populations. In a way, I think the field just needs to respect the importance of these scaling exercises more. Um, it's back to basics kind of stuff. We, um, yeah, it's, it's, we just want to update these things all the time. It was sort of sexy research in 1990, and now it doesn't seem like it's as important, but the world has changed in the last 30 years, so we need to keep redoing these things. Fantastic. Um, Ed, is there anything else that, you, that you'd like to add that we've, that we've not covered? Uh, I guess the only thing I'd say is I'm you know, delighted that addiction stepped up and it is giving its endorsement and support to the idea that knowing basic facts in order of magnitude is important. And conversely, I think that uh, journals have a role to play in not letting people get away with saying there are 200,000 high-frequency heroin users and the reason we know it is because of some GPS. We, we need to resist the temptation to use those numbers in ways that eh, they, re they really, really can't support. 
Fantastic. Um, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you for your interest.